issues of property. And what about the economy? What is ownership? Is this appropriate? Goods. Properties. Commodification. Ownership. Property. Appropriate. Welcome to Appropriate, the podcast of the collaborative research center Structural Change of Property. I'm Charlotte and today's episode is the second of the Global Commons and their Discontents mini-series and will again be hosted by Alexandra Eresmann from the Junior Research Project 1, The Transformation of Global Commons and the Future of Planetary Ecosystems. If you haven't already, go check out the first episode of this mini-series, which introduces the topic of global commons and the role of territorialization for their regulation. Today's topic is about one special form of global commons, the deep seabed. But let's hear more from Alexandra about the topic and the expert Isabel Feichner. Thanks for that, Charlotta. In today's episode, we hear from Dr. Isabel Feichner a current fellow at the New Institute where she works on global and urban commons and in particular, commons public partnerships. In this episode, we will be focusing on a specific global commons, the deep seabed. The deep seabed regime has often been hailed as a successful example of international cooperation and management of global commons because the international treaty includes the common heritage of mankind principle. This principle implies elements of common ownership, equitable distribution, and environmental protection. The deep seabed regime also includes the creation of an international organization, the International Seabed Authority, to oversee the implementation of this principle and to manage this global commons. Despite all of this, Feichner expertly outlines and analyzes why and how the deep seabed regime has actually developed into a regime with an economic extraction agenda. We will also hear her take on how we could reconstitute the deep seabed as a true global commons, which also helps us consider how we approach the management and use of other global commons. So now let's hear from Isabel Feichner herself on this topic. In the first part of my presentation, I'd like to establish why the current seabed mining regime must rather be seen as an anti-commons than a global commons before I then turn to some initial reflections of what it would take to reconstitute the seabed as a commons. Deep seabed mining recently is receiving a lot of attention Two figures are currently at the center of the contentious debate on whether the seabed beyond national jurisdiction should be mined for minerals. Minerals that are used, for example, in the production of batteries for electric cars or mobile phones. They are Gerard Barron and Michael Lodge. Let me briefly introduce them to you. Gerard Barron, Chief Executive Officer of the Metals Company. The metals company currently holds licenses to mine large swaths of the ocean floor for polymetallic nodules. TMC is a so-called contractor under the legal regime for deep seabed mining established by the UN Law of the Sea Convention of 1982, the 1994 Implementation Agreement, and the regulations adopted by the International Seabed Authority, the ISA. Contractors require the sponsorship of a state that is a member of the ISA, the international organization that administers the mining rights. I will get to that later. TMC is sponsored by Nauru, a small Pacific island state. That is why you see Baron address the Council of the ISA under the firm of Nauru, which at the 2019 session included Baron in their delegation. 
He gave a speech urging states to finally conclude the mining code so that his company could start commercial mining operations to produce the metals needed for a clean energy transition. He thus presented himself as an agent of the common good, his company as a savior of humanity from climate catastrophe, and at the same time promoter of economic development of Nauru, considered one of the poorest states of the world. In the meantime, in June 2021, Nauru invoked the so-called two-year rule of the 1994 implementation agreement, which some have called a nuclear option. Arguably, it requires the council to complete the so-called mining code within the next two years. This move is meant to put additional pressure on the ISA and governments to adopt regulations governing the exploitation phase of seabed minerals. So far, only exploration regulations are in force. TMC has also applied for and recently been granted by the ISA's Legal and Technical Commission permission to conduct a pilot mining test in the clarion Clipperton zone where its license areas are located. During this pilot mining test, which is itself very much disputed, it intends to collect several thousand tons of nodules and thus test whether it is technically well-equipped to mine the seabed floor. Criticism of TMC is mounting, not only because of the environmental risks and uncertainties, but also shady or even fraudulent business practices. On its website, it presents deep seabed mining as a clean, sustainable, and profitable operation. Yet, as recently reported by the Ocean Foundation, in its filings with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, it is much more cautious, stating that, I quote, there can be no assurance that we will be able to commercially develop our resource areas to achieve profitability in the future. There's also a legal suit pending against Team C alleging inter alia the overvaluation of an exploration license. Let me turn to the other villain from the perspective of opponents to deep seabed mining. This is Michael Lodge, Secretary General of the International Seabed Authority, the international organization that I just mentioned established ACLOS to administer the seabed and its minerals as the common heritage of humankind on behalf of the international community. Michael Lodge is an outspoken proponent of seabed mining. He endorses a similar narrative as the metals company, according to which the minerals are needed for a clean energy transition, according to which it is more sustainable to mine them from the deep ocean than on land, where the social and ecological effects allegedly are more devastating. Recently, he has come under fire for belittling the concerns of marine scientists who warn of the serious harms mining may cause to whole ecosystems not only from the destruction of seafloor biodiversity, but also sediment and wastewater plumes, as well as noise pollution. A piece of investigative journalism published in the New York Times calls into question his qualification as Secretary General, as it substantiates concern that the ISA may have illegally provided Nautilus, a predecessor of TMC, with confidential information and thus enabled it to secure mining licenses for areas particularly rich in polymetallic nodules. My intention is not to demonize these two people. Therefore, I turn now to the structure of the DSM, the deep seabed mining regime. 
I wish to indicate how built into these structures is one, a bias for mining the ocean floor, and two, how they privilege the quest for commercial profit over the social justice objectives that are still also present, at least on paper, namely equitable access to mineral deposits and equitable sharing of benefits. For the sake of time, I will do this here very superficially. I've written on the topic more extensively. And I want to do so by introducing the three main actors in the regime, their roles and incentives. I already mentioned the International Seabed Authority and its role as guardian of the common heritage. Frequent attempts have been made to portray this organization as an environmental organization, either by interpreting widely the common heritage that the ISA is the guardian of, as not only encompassing the seafloor and its minerals, but also its living creatures, or by interpreting the ISA's mandate as primarily aimed at environmental protection. In my view, such interpretations are difficult to reconcile with the present state of the law. Possibly this might change with the adoption of a treaty on biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction. As it currently stands, UNCLOS clearly mandates the ISA to promote the development of resources of the area, meaning exploration and exploitation of the seafloor minerals. It was therefore very apt when the delegate of Jamaica stated that, I quote, the International Seabed Authority is like no other international organization. It is here to run an industry, the deep seabed mining industry. The ISA's exploitation bias is enhanced by the rules of ISA funding. UNCLOS stipulates that apart from contributions from member states and other international organizations, the ISA shall be funded from the proceeds of mining, including fees and royalties from contractors. The ISA thus not only has a mandate to promote mining, but also a financial incentive to do so. Fees and royalties will come from the contractors. They begin commercial mining operations. One of these contractors I already introduced is Metals Company. It's the only one devoted exclusively to seabed mining. Other contractors are state enterprises, state agencies, or other commercial enterprises with a more diversified field of activities than TMC, such as the British Corporation Lockheed Martin. To this date, it is still unclear how the royalties reset that contractors will have to pay to the ISA for commercially exploiting the common heritage. This question is too still under negotiation. Researchers from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology were hired by the ISA as external experts. In the words of the MIT experts, and I quote, investors will only take on projects if discounted future revenues are large enough to provide a return on the investment that is competitive with other investment opportunities. They further point out that the large uncertainties surrounding mining in the deep sea mean that investors will require a higher rate of return than when they invest in more conventional projects. This puts downward pressures on royalties, at least when the objective is to incentivize private contractors to engage in mining activities. At this point, I have to briefly introduce you to the so-called parallel system. It is a central feature of the regime and responsible for the anti-communal shape that the management of the seafloor is currently taking. 
the G77 had advocated for the establishment of an international mining operation called the Enterprise. This mining operation was to obtain the exclusive right to mine the ocean floor and the proceeds from mining were to be equitably shared. The industrialized states were opposed, however, to this scheme of collaborative mining. They wanted their private corporations to be able to acquire mining rights as well. A compromise was eventually reached upon a proposal by US Foreign Minister Henry Kissinger. And this came to be known as the parallel system, sometimes also called the site banking system. It envisages mining by state sponsors entities, the contractors, and by an international mining operation, the enterprise, which however, as you heard yesterday, today only exists on paper. It is, I would argue, the turning point when the potential commons of the seabed turned into its opposite. Under this system, when a contractor from a so-called developed state applies for a mining license, it must, in its application, designate two mining sites of equal value. If all other legal requirements are met, it then receives from the ISA a license to mine one of the two sites. The other site is banked, meaning it is reserved for mining either by the enterprise or by a contractor from a developing state. Already contemporary observers noted that the parallel system that allows private corporations and the enterprise to mine in competition would undermine the promise of equal participation in mining. I now turn to the third category of actor, the states. The Law of the Sea Convention requires state sponsorship of corporations that seek to conduct mining activities. The International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea explains the function of state sponsorship as follows. The role of the sponsoring state contributes to the realization of the common interest of all states in the proper application of the principle of the common heritage of mankind. Sponsoring states together with the ISA are thus to act as guardians of the common heritage. They are to ensure that contractors comply with the law, for example, environmental obligations when engaging in seabed mining. Yet while the law envisages sponsorship as guardianship, a number of states, including Nauru and other Pacific Island states have opted for sponsorship mainly for economic reasons. Gérard Barron of TMC, you remember, refers to the promise of economic development in his address when he stressed that Nauru's participation as a sponsoring state allows access to development opportunities that would otherwise not exist. What Barron does not mention is the other side of the deal, the benefit that TMC derives from sponsorship by Nauru and other Pacific Island states. Through such sponsorship, TMC could acquire mining licenses for areas that under the parallel regime have been reserved for mining by the enterprise or developing states. Nauru, through this deal, we might say attempts to monetize its sovereignty. Its own resource deposits were depleted during colonialism. The state is highly indebted. Thus, Nauru does what many other small states have been doing by serving as tax havens, selling passports or opening ship registries, it banks on its sovereignty and offers sponsorship to TMC in the expectation of economic returns. Is this expectation of economic returns justified? There is reason for doubt. Mined minerals will not be processed in Nauru. 
revenue from taxes similarly will be minimal as tax competition among the Pacific Island states is keeping rates low. To sum up, deep seabed mining not only entails great ecological risks, the legal regime as it stands undermines the promises which we can trace in its history and legal texts of international solidarity, equal participation in mining and equitable sharing of benefits. It privileges what French sociologist Fabien Uniesa calls the investor's gaze. Despite the invocation of many values by the various actors such as climate protection, economic development and social justice, the way these actors value the seabed is shaped by an investment perspective, a perspective that locates the realization of value in the investor's future. I introduce the notion of value here as I believe it's key to the reconstitution of the seabed as a global commons, but also to understanding the obstacles. Before I come to a commons perspective, I want to mention two different approaches of resistance to deep seabed mining and what I see as their pitfalls. One explicitly endorses the investor's gaze as a tactics in pursuit of the aim to stop deep seabed mining. It holds that if we weigh the costs of seabed mining to the environment against its benefits, we might then see that the costs outweigh the benefits, which means that seabed mining should not be allowed to proceed. In order to make the costs and benefits commensurable, techniques of so-called natural capital accounting are being used. Thus, in a recent uh, paper of the Institute of Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam, the authors write, deep sea ecosystems are complex and provide a wide range of benefits to humanity. Natural capital accounting provides a tool to measure the value of these benefits and weigh them against costs. Natural capital accounting, the valuation of ecosystem services, willingness to pay as method to put a price on the intrinsic value of the deep seabed, all these are methods employed to value the environment and to conduct a comprehensive cost-benefit analysis. An analysis at the end of which we shall know whether mining will benefit humanity or whether it won't. These methods, however, require a commodification of the ocean, the identification of ecosystem services and other things people would be willing to pay for on a hypothetical market. It's a commodification not for the purpose of actual economic transactions, but merely for accounting purposes. And yet it has world-making effects because the concepts we use to describe and value the world affect and shape this world. Through commodification, even if it is just for the purpose of valuation, we lose sight of the ocean's richness, of our entanglements with the ocean, and yet recognition of these entanglements might be our only hope of living well on a damaged planet. They would be key, I argue, to reconstitute it as a commons. But first, the second pathway. Surabi mentioned yesterday the calls for a moratorium. Some who call for a moratorium justify it, referring to the seabed as a pristine wilderness which should be conserved. This in turn prompts suggestions that mining instead should be conducted in outer space on the moon, where it might be less disturbing to our ecological and aesthetic sensibilities. Expanding extraction and moving extraction elsewhere are colonial patterns, 
The depiction of the environment as a place to be safe from human interference is no path towards a commoning of the ocean in my view. So that's just as a very brief side note. So let me finally turn to a commons or better a commoning perspective. The aim of commoning has been formulated as reclaiming commonwealth. Today's practice theory of commoning understands the commons not like Hardin as a failed management system, but with Eleanor Ostrom as a social institution as a living social system for the collective management of shared resources. Such systems have three characteristics. One, a shared or collectively produced resource. Two, a community taking care of the commons. Three, and perhaps most importantly, the activity of commoning, the collective action of creating, restoring, maintaining, and governing in common. I briefly turn to each of these in relation to the seabed. Looking at the seabed, we see an attempt to reclaim it as commonwealth when third world states insisted that the seabed was the common heritage of humankind, when they did so in order to prevent a neo-colonial scramble for appropriation. They were successful in achieving the designation of the seabed as common heritage, which belongs to mankind as a whole, and the establishment of an international organization mandated with promoting access and the equitable sharing of benefits. Leaving aside the further developments for a moment, this is an important achievement and step towards a commons. Second characteristic, a community that takes care of the commons or the shared resource. Here, I would like to briefly remind you of the hopes that some international lawyers in the 70s, when the deep seabed regime was being negotiated, had. One of them was Mohamed Bejawi. To him, the law of the seabed, when exclusive mining by the enterprise was still on the table, bore the potential to become a new international law, one that bypassed the sacrosanct principle of state sovereignty. The ISA with the enterprise held the promise of a new type of an international institution, one acting not on behalf of states, but on behalf of the international community an international institution that could reach mankind as a whole through the direct management of the common heritage. In his book, Towards a New International Economic Order, he also wrote, and I quote, perhaps the notion of the international worker will thus appear following that of the international civil servant. At the same time, he saw very clearly that such transformations of the international order would not be readily accepted by those states enjoying privileged positions in the system. And they did not accept them, as we know. But the institutional imagination existed, and it can be built on in today's struggles to reclaim and reconstitute the commons. Today's struggles might face even stronger resistance. I have alluded to the current power constellations in my presentation already. So here, I just want to flag a further question that a commons approach needs to grapple with. As an international lawyer, I'm aware of the many uses and in particular misuses of the concept of international community. I agree with Juliane Spitter that I quote community and commonality would need to be disengaged from their alignment with identity, unity, naturalness, brotherhood, or affiliation and reconcile with the concept of common property. A claim to common property may create community. 
and therefore important steps in reconstituting the seabed as a global commons may be to reclaim the objectives of common ownership, equitable access, and equitable redistribution. And further to, and once more I quote Spitter, envisage an emancipatory and radically democratic conception of the communal and ask about how the common can be shared and politically shaped in our world today. This requires again, institutional imagination. And this brings me thirdly to the activity of commoning that many commons researchers today see as the essential element in constituting a commons. Commoning builds on a sense of community and entails practices of care for the commons. In relation to the seabed, it is being doubted whether a sense of communality or relations of care could ever be established given its remoteness and vastness to take up the term Surabi used yesterday. These doubts are expressed in the quote on my slide. It just feels like, and I read, barring some unforeseen surge in concerns for ecosystems that almost nobody will ever see that we are connected to only by screens and consisting mostly of funny looking invertebrates that seabed mining is going to happen sooner or later. I just want to answer two things to this question. First, that of course we are not only connected to the ocean by our screens. The type of research that Surabi mentioned yesterday reveals the manifold material and spiritual connections that exist. Second, these connections are also reflected in legal concepts. In its 2021 decision in Trans-Tasman Resources, the Supreme Court of New Zealand recognized the relevance of Maori customary law concepts of custodianship for the interpretation and implementation of New Zealand's exclusive economic zone and continental shelf. We also see these concepts invoked in the call for a moratorium by the Pacific Parliamentarians Alliance on Deep Seabed Mining. And I will close with a quote from their declaration. As Pacific peoples, the ocean is central to life and well-being. From it, we draw our identity, affirm our existence and spirituality, and cultivate and sustain our relationships. In it, we find our place in ecology. Caring for the ocean is a responsibility that also sustains and perpetuates us. Thank you. Thank you to Isabel Feichner for her wonderful contributions to the workshop and this podcast. We can now clearly see how the deep seabed regime and the International Seabed Authority have developed with an economic exploitation agenda to the detriment of both the environment and global distributive justice. Despite the inclusion of the common heritage of mankind principle, the management of this global commons followed the investor's gaze and thus failed to result in the protection of this fascinating ecosystem of the deep seabed or in the just distribution of any benefits of deep seabed activity. So what can be done about this? Feichner presented a few tangible options related to the deep seabed regime, including a moratorium, the mining of outer space, and the economic valuation of deep seabed ecosystems. But she also left us to consider more normatively about how we constitute the commons. She proposed we view common management not as a failed management system as suggested by Hardin, but as a social institution for the collective management and sharing of resources. Therefore, future global commons discourse must involve a conversation on how we reconstitute the global commons. Doing this can help us with current and future global commons management debates on the deep seabed and beyond. Thank you very much, Alexandra, for hosting this interesting episode. And thank you for listening. 
This episode was the second one of our mini-series about global commons. If you liked it, follow this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can also visit our website or follow us on Twitter. Have a nice day and see you next time. Appropriate. Diese Podcast-Reihe entsteht im Rahmen des Sonderforschungsbereichs Transregio 294 Strukturwandel des Eigentums und wird gefördert durch die Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft DFG unter der Fördernummer SFB TRR 294-1-424-638-267.